I have a very special connection to this passage personally. The reason for that is it was reading this passage after many years of going forward to receive prayer at every conceivable opportunity to receive the gift of tongues. It was when I was reading this passage out loud in worship to the Lord that God first gave me that gift. So church would say, all right, anyone wants to receive prayer, if you want to receive you know, spiritual gifts, or if you want to need something, I would say, I want to speak in tongues. And they'd pray for me and nothing would happen because we don't believe in faking it or just trying to make it happen. So we're, I would be very uh, frustrated, but also very tenacious. And one of the things my, the folks that prayed for me, which was Denny Keneally and then my father Troy, uh, they would say, all right, you know, we prayed for you, go, why don't you go off to a spot kind of by yourself and just begin to praise the Lord out loud. And so I began to read Revelation 19, 11 through 21 out loud. And halfway through reading that is when the Lord gave me the gift of tongues and I began to speak in tongues and haven't stopped since. So uh, I love this passage for that reason, but also it's just one of my favorite passages in scripture. If you've been here for a while, you know, I quote this a lot. Because I love this description of our Lord Jesus. And if I had to pick one passage that describes Jesus that resonates with me the most, it might be this one. And when I survey the spiritual landscape around us, I think to myself, this kind of Christ, this emphasis on the person of Jesus is exactly what our culture needs as he will be for the tribulation generation as well. So I'm going to stop messing around. We're going to read these first six verses, and then we'll take our time to go through it. John the Apostle is speaking, relating visions that God has given to him, and he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God." And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now some of y'all maybe don't know me so well might be taking a second look at me after hearing me say this is my favorite description of Jesus and then reading it out loud. Why, of all the passages about Jesus, is this the one that excites this guy? Is he okay? Because look at this very closely. Jesus comes riding down out of heaven with an army. He smites the nations with his word. It says a sword proceeds from his mouth. This is a figurative piece of speech that when Jesus talks, it's like being cut down with a sword. Just as the Lord at the beginning of time said, let there be, he'll be looking at these armies and saying, let there no longer be. He's going to use that powerful voice of his. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, they said, who, or he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And they all fell back to the ground. And then they got up again. He said, I asked you, who are you looking for? 
It's a way of showing that Jesus laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. In the same way, now he's going to be striking down the nations. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And it says his clothes are spattered with blood. Now you may think you know what that refers to. But this is not Jesus' blood. This is his enemy's blood. Jesus has been treading the wine press. As in crushing the grapes and causing the juice to splatter him. It says he will judge the world. He will rule the world with a rod of iron. Let me ask you a question. How would you feel about a presidential candidate that says, When I'm elected, I will rule this nation with a rod of iron. I want to see that guy on a few podcasts, but I don't know if I'd vote for him. <laughs> Many people, shall I even say most people, and maybe even some of you don't like this picture very much. You might say something like, this doesn't seem like Jesus. Maybe you had that thought. Maybe you're not opposed to it. Be like, well, that's a little different. That, that doesn't seem like the Jesus I know. But let me ask you the question. Why is that? Why is it? There are some that say that the reason this picture was added later is that the church felt like they had been a little too soft in their depiction of Jesus and they needed to balance it. But that's simply ignorance. Even in the Old Testament, prophesying Jesus would come, depicted him like this. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 4. You, as I read this out loud, you'll hear how John is using the language of Isaiah to communicate what Jesus is going to do. The prophet writes, Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. The answer, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The prophet says, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So this picture of the robe dipped in blood is not a reference to the crucifixion, as important as that is. It is a reference to the enemies of God being struck down by the arrival of Jesus. You might say, okay, all right, so there's a prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus striking down the nations. Fine. But that's Old Testament. New Testament Jesus is nice. I've seen the pictures of him. He's got a lamb around his shoulders. Like, you know, he's great. Okay. Well, let's look at what Jesus himself said would happen when he returned. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. I'm only going to read selected verses from this for time's sake. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed ones, and do everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this is not just the Apostle John having some crazy fever dream, nor is it just a harsher Old Testament God. This is what Jesus himself said his return would be like. So if we're trying to figure out who Jesus is and we ignore this aspect of him, you have an incomplete picture of Christ. 
So let me ask you, can you handle this Jesus? Can you handle this picture of who he is? A fierce, masculine Jesus with a sword in his hand? The warrior? The judge? Can you picture Jesus splattered with the blood and gore of his enemies? So I don't know. <laughs> I think I ought to, but that sure doesn't seem like what I'm used to. Well, let me ask this question then. What brings this on? Why is Jesus showing up like this? I thought Jesus was love. I thought Jesus was kindness. He is. But where is this coming from? If you've not been here before today, this might come as a shock to you. But for those of us that have been walking through the book, this is the inevitable and absolutely appropriate end to everything we've been reading. Let's give a summary of the book of Revelation, where we've gone so far. The first thing that we believe is going to happen, the revelation is about the end of the world. What's going to happen at the end? The first thing we believe is going to happen is called the rapture of the church, where Jesus will catch up his people to be with him in the, in the clouds, in the sky, before he begins to pour out his judgment. Last time in Revelation, we talked in great detail about why we believe that. Second thing that Re Revelation describes is the rise of Babylon. What does that mean? That there will be a worldwide empire that will conquer the globe. As I like to say, all of your worst globalist fears are going to come true. The third thing we see is the ravage of God's people. That this empire is not just a political force, but it is working over time to punish and persecute both Jews and Christians. And that the Lord will give them into his hand. That the Antichrist will strike down the world. Number four is the ruin of the planet. That God himself will begin to rain down plagues upon the earth, like he did upon Egypt in the book of Exodus. Fifth thing is the revenge of the devil. God will take the leash off of Satan and the devil will begin to ravage and harass and torment the globe with his worst demons at his side, establishing himself as the little g God of this world. Number six, we believe there will be a refuge of the faithful, that there will be some that God preserves. In particular, many from Jerusalem will flee into the wilderness. Will there be a place prepared for them to be safe during this time? Because if that was not the case, they would all be wiped out. Number seven, this is going to happen halfway through. There will be a reorganization of that empire. Up to this point, it's been a ten-kingdom coalition to strike down the whole world. But there will come a point where one man will rise up and say, Now everyone follows me. The empire will give way to this single dictatorship. He will strike down some of these other kings and establish himself. We call him the Antichrist, who will rule the world. Number eight, there will be a rule of the Antichrist where there will be forced worship of him. Everyone will be required to bow down to a golden image of this Antichrist, to take a mark upon their hand or their forehead so that they cannot buy or sell without it. And the only way you get the mark is by bowing down to him and worshiping him as God. There will be false miracles done around the world to deceive all the nations and God's people will be harassed and driven into the ground. Which leads to number nine, the rot of the world. There's a second wave of plagues the Bible describes in Revelation that seem to me, in large measure, not really new plagues, but the, the continued rot of what began with the old plagues. Whereas before a third of the water was struck, by the time we get to the end of the book, all of the waters are struck. It's getting worse and worse. Which will lead us to number ten, the rampage from Armageddon. 
Armageddon is descriptive of the last battle. It's also the place where the Antichrist will gather his forces to march on the world and conquer every nation that is raised up against him, which will lead to number 11, the rays of Babylon. God will use the Antichrist to destroy his own capital city, which represents all of the heathenism and materialism and sin of the world. But then he will turn his attention in that battle of Armageddon to Jerusalem. And he will sack the city of Jerusalem and march into the wilderness to wipe out the rest of those Jews. This tyrannical madman running the world at the behest of Satan. So then we get to number 12, which is here, the return of Jesus. That's when this moment is going to happen. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. The apostles watched Jesus ascend into heaven and were staring up into the sky. But the angel said, why are you looking? You're supposed to go to Jerusalem. Don't worry, Jesus will return the same way you saw him go. Colossians 3, verse 4 says that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Those armies of God that follow behind Jesus... I think the best way to understand that is a mixed multitude of saints and angels. Because the Bible describes in Jesus' returns, sometimes it says he has all the saints with him. Sometimes it says he has angels with him. Well, why not both? <laughs> all the hosts of heaven. This is when the saints go marching in. Behind Jesus Christ to strike down the nations. So when you get all of that... The horror of the tribulation. As we've been reading it, it's not been very pleasant the whole time. There have been some days where it's just a bummer. It's like, okay, so one day there's going to be an evil dictator that forces everybody to worship him or they can't buy or sell, and if they don't, they get their heads chopped off. You know, go with God. We'll see you on Wednesday night. But you've been thinking, something's got to be done about this. We've got to stop this. We've got to prevent this from happening. You're right. It will be brought to an abrupt, violent end. By the just almighty hand of our Lord Jesus. All this description of Jesus striking down the nations and ruling with a rod of iron comes after seven years of the worst government, the worst religion, and the worst experience that has ever happened on the globe. It's needed and necessary. And this is, in fact, a deliberate answer to everything Antichrist has done. The word Antichrist, the epistles of John use it, means against or instead of Christ. Which is why many of the descriptions of the Antichrist have been in mockery of Jesus. We saw in chapter 6, verse 2, he comes riding in on a white horse. And he goes out conquering and to conquer. And he's got a bow in his hand. Well, here comes somebody riding on a white horse out of heaven with the armies of heaven behind him. The thought being, who's the real Christ here? Who's the real one riding in on a white horse? And then in chapter 13, verse 1, it said the beast, the Antichrist, was crowned with ten diadems. Like, wow, ten crowns. That's so impressive. Here shows up Jesus, and he's got crowns on his head too. And John, how many does he have? A lot. You think you've got crowns? I have every crown. You're seeing the real version of everything the Antichrist was trying to be. Jesus, my friends, is not just the gentle shepherd. He is that. But he is also a warrior. He's also a judge. He's also a mighty king. Jesus Christ shed his own blood on the cross for us. But if you do not have room in your understanding for a Christ who would also shed others' blood, you don't know Jesus as the Bible depicts him. Jesus comes 
to make war upon the world. He came in peace, riding on a donkey, remember? Well, now he comes riding off to war with a white horse. Well, what's going to happen? Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Somebody say, cool. <laughs> and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, symbol for the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. What do people do when they see Jesus riding out of heaven with an army behind him, flaming eyes and striking down the nations with a word? What do people do? How many people have said, if I were to see Jesus coming down out of heaven, I would believe him and I would worship him? No, they wouldn't. Because what are people going to do when it actually happens? It says they gathered to make war. The last thing the Antichrist is going to be engaging in before Jesus comes is a civil war. But they're willing to put all that aside to fight Jesus, which is a hopeless endeavor. I mean, come on. You see a man come riding out of heaven with an army. You might think, all right, boys, I think we're done for. No. Do you remember in the Ten Commandments movie where Pharaoh is being asked to go away from the Red Sea? We cannot win against a god. And he says... Better to die in battle with a god than to live in fear. Oh, that sounds so macho, but you're an idiot. Because <laughs> your entire army is about to get swallowed up by the Red Sea. And you're going to have to go back home and have nothing. It's the same thing here. The hubris. And one of the ways we know it's helpless or hopeless is because this angel standing in the sun, which is pretty just cool to think about, right? He's going to call upon all the birds of the earth. This is another Old Testament reference. And the call is basically, supper time, fellas. Ezekiel 39, verse 17. Uh, chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel are a description of the battle of Armageddon. So verse 17, similar context, says, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, Speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field and say, Assemble! And come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. Another Old Testament reference here. It's like, if the angel who's in charge of the sun tells all the birds, Hey, fellas, gather from all over the place because there's going to be plenty for everyone to eat once Jesus wipes out this army. You don't have a chance. You know, Jesus said something similar. Matthew 24, 27 through 28. Jesus said, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Do you realize what Jesus just said? How do you know I've come? Well, you'll see lots of buzzards circling around all the corpse that I'm going to leave behind me as I'm marching on Jerusalem. See, you can see how it gets all quiet again when I say that? I don't know about that. This is our Lord. The hatred of the Antichrist and those who bear his mark is going to overwhelm their so-called common sense. They sold their souls long ago. Every one of them has a mark on their head or their hand. They've all bowed down to worship this man. And here comes the true king of kings. And they say, let's go to war. 
But you know, this is not an attitude that you have to wait until the end of time to see. You can see it all around you, everywhere. People today despise the idea of Jesus Christ. Whereas before it seemed most people had at least a respect for the person of Jesus, a respect for the church, and there are many places around the world that still do. Uganda, for example, was one of those places. But it seems in our day, and especially in my generation, that there's a, a venom that people have towards the person of Christ, to say nothing of the church or Christians. On the one hand, people hate the thought that Jesus would ever judge anybody like this. Maybe some of y'all are thinking, oh, I'm not going to worship a God that is going to strike down the nations. That's just wrong. That's not good. They hate the thought of God's judgment, especially when they consider that this judgment is coming against their sin. Because what is Im implicit in that understanding is, my sin doesn't deserve to be judged. It's not fair. It's not right. Well, he's coming to judge, which means to adjudicate fairly. But they think that if anybody ever does anything against something I've chosen to do, they're in the wrong. And that's people's attitude towards Christ. God can't be a judge. I would never worship a God that would judge somebody. Interesting. Because on the other hand, they also scoff at the idea of Jesus as this soft very like shampoo model looking dude who cannot correct injustice or fight for peace. The same people that march in the streets demanding justice and even violent justice for this and that hate God and the thought of the Lord doing the exact same thing they're marching for. Why? Because they cannot accept the fact that it is them who will be in the crosshairs when the judgment comes. In that sense, Jesus of Nazareth represents everything that man is rebelling against. Jesus, as the Word of God, as, the, as God, very God, as the Creed says, bearing the exact image of His likeness, represents everything that people have been rebelling against since the Garden of Eden. They hate Him for His justice because they don't want to be judged, and they hate Him for His mercy because they want somebody else to be judged. And round and round and round. Anger at God's inactivity, but also indignation at His law. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 why judgment was coming. If you've ever wondered why does God have to judge the world, He tells us. He says, this is the judgment. The older translations have this is the condemnation, because it is in fact a negative judgment. This is it. Why, Jesus? Why must you return like this? Because the light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. If God would just talk to us, He did. Jesus came, but they hated Him. Why? Because He shined a light into their life. How many people say, I would love to follow Jesus, but if you're going to tell me that this thing is sinful, well, I'm not about to stop that. They love darkness rather than light. When Jesus returns, people will not fall at their face, on their knees and call Him Lord. They will pick up a rifle and start shooting. Man still wants to rule himself at Satan's terrible influence. And many people, perhaps even most people, would rather die than bow to Jesus. And that is not something that is reserved for the end of time. There are people every day, maybe even in this room, who feel the same way. I hate God because he doesn't do anything about injustice, but I also hate God for inventing such a thing as justice that is going to hold me accountable. I love the darkness rather than the light. Verse 20 through 21, we know how this is going to go. And the beast was captured. Somebody say, finally. And with it, the false prophet. Somebody say, good riddance 
who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. These verses are the rousing resolution to the terror that what we've been calling the malignant trinity has been inflicting on the world. Instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you've had Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet deceiving the nations, afflicting the nations, leading them into rebellion against their own Lord. And Jesus shows up, and he's got something special prepared for them. If you want to look at the prophecies as we bring them all together, it describes that Jesus in this campaign is going to first descend into the wilderness. We read back in Isaiah 63 that his garments were splattered with crimson. And where was he coming from? From the wilderness, from Basra, which is in Edom. That Jesus is going to come marching to the rescue of these Jews that have been fleeing to hide in that place in the wilderness. They've been delivered and protected there. But now Antichrist has destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Babylon, destroyed his own enemies. And now he's out to finish off the rest of the Jews. In that moment, as we've discussed before... They will realize the Lord will lift the hardness of heart that currently afflicts Israel right now. And he will show them, now is the moment where you need your Messiah. But you crucified your Messiah. And it says they will weep for Jesus like they would weep for an only son. And it says, I will pour out a spirit on Israel of confession of sin and repentance. And they're going to say, Lord, we need you now. Hosanna, save us now, Lord Jesus. And that's when those heavens are just going to crack open. And here comes Jesus riding down. And all those armies that thought they were going to have an easy victory have to turn and hear Jesus say, enough with you. And watch their friends just be shredded to pieces right in front of them. Jesus rides into the wilderness to the rescue of his people. And then he's going to march on Jerusalem where every scripture makes clear that's where the final battle will be fought. Imagine the Antichrist sending legions after legions to come and stop him. And yet there's a trail of blood. It says it's going to flow as high as the horse's bridle, which is about the distance from Jerusalem to Basra, by the way. Very interesting. The final battle will be fought and won. Zechariah gives us a prophetic description of this. The Lord says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. That's Armageddon, okay? And the city shall be taken. The house is plundered. The women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile. But the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. That's that moment. Lord, what do we do? Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. That means there's going to be a whole wave of people fleeing the city. And Jesus is going to make a way through the mountains for them to get away and get behind me so that I can fight for you. And it says, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. It's amazing. The last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was on the Mount of Olives and he ascended to heaven. 
The next time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split in half. Did you know that there's a fault line under the Mount of Olives, by the way? They didn't know that when they wrote it down, but the Lord knew. That's the victory Jesus is going to win. All the soldiers will be slain, but it says the Antichrist and the false prophet are taken alive. And they're thrown into the lake of fire. You know, God has one of those. He has a lake of fire. Isn't that an interesting image to consider? I've read a lot of people trying to like figure out what that meant. I mean, is it like a lava flow? Is it just, you know, fire mounting up? Is it like some new thing that God made fire? And well, I don't know. I don't want to go. <laughs> I heard somebody say one time, and it was a rather prominent person. They say, I don't know where we got this idea that hell is full of fire. Uh, when he says they're going to go to the lake of fire, that's where it comes from. This is hell. Jesus used the Greek word Gehenna to describe it. In Mark chapter 9, he quotes Isaiah who said that it will be a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. The Bible calls it everlasting darkness, eternal isolation separated from God. Hell is eternal conscious torment. Do you see that? They were thrown alive into the lake of fire. We're going to talk more about this in uh, the future weeks here. But that's where they go. And that's where they belong. That everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And we hear that and we go, praise God. Finally put a stop to all this. Finally take, you know, the worst version of every dictator that ever came through history. The worst religious zealot that ever came through history. He's going to take them and he's going to throw them in hell. Good. All of the evil of Babylon will end in one day. And every Christian is looking forward to this. But if you're going to adhere to that and hope for that, I've got to remind you, even we, as respectable 21st century American Christians, must make room for a violent Jesus in our religion. See, you don't even like me putting those two words together, do you? But what else do you call Jesus treading the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty? Arriving to Jerusalem, not drenched in his own blood, drenched in his enemy's blood, where he will stand forever as a despot that will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And if you don't like me using the word despot, the Bible uses that exact Greek word to describe Jesus. Total authority invested in one person. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know if I can handle this. I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I want to think of Jesus as performing violent actions, to which I would remind you of the cleansing of the temple, by the way. But the Pharisees also had a version of Jesus that they encountered that they couldn't handle. The Pharisees wanted this Jesus. And they couldn't handle the fact that Jesus was showing mercy to the people they thought who most deserved this kind of judgment. And they said, then he can't possibly be our Messiah because our Messiah is going to strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron, not showing mercy to the poor and the downtrodden. Isn't it fascinating that we have completely flipped it around and we say, our Messiah can't strike down the nations and rule with a rod of iron. He's just supposed to show mercy to the downtrodden. That's not fair. That's not right. It's never good to have an unbalanced picture of who Jesus is, friends. Because then you'll start to emphasize the pieces you like and de-emphasize the ones you don't. And then you will end up that the version of Jesus you need is not there for you when you need him. All of this was exactly what Babylon deserved. This end times Babylon is the culmination of the mystery of lawlessness, as Paul calls it. Satan's constant, unending, pinky in the brain plan to take over the world. It's always going on. 
The Lord is restraining him, 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us. But one day the Lord will remove that restraint, I believe, through the rapture. And it will happen. Every evil dream in Satan's heart will come to pass. It's an empire of evil. The worst of men, the worst of angels, and it's at work even now. How many times have you looked at your television or your computer screen and cried out for God to step in and do something? Haven't you felt that way before? Seen some horrible video on the, on the screen and say, Lord, you've got to do something about that. Or hear about some persecution in a far-off country. Or see how justice has been miscarried in various ways. Lord, you've got to step in and do something about this. Well, he's going to. But when you pray those prayers, you do realize you're calling for this Jesus to come and act like this. This is what was prophesied in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, where it says, The nations rage and plot a vain thing and say, Let us cast off the shackles of the Lord God. But in Psalm 2, 8 verse 9, the Father says to the Son, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. I've heard that used as a verse for missions before, and I do like it for that. But the next verse says, what are he's going to do with those nations once he gets them? You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. That's God's solution to the injustice that vexes your spirit. You, when you see something wicked going on and you feel like something's got to be done, what you are experiencing is the wrath of God in small measure. Imagine how the eternal, immortal, invisible God feels about the same things that you see that cause you to be full of wrath too. Well, we should never be angry. The Bible doesn't say that. It says, be angry and do not what? God is angry, but he does not sin. And that's what's expected of us too. And I'll say this. If Jesus is unable to execute God's wrath upon wickedness, then he is a soft savior. He's useless ultimately to the downtrodden. This is what some people believe. They believe that Jesus just exists to be an example for us of being nice to people that are not like us and to be willing to sacrifice our own needs for somebody else and to be full of love and full of kindness. But they cannot handle Jesus with this kind of violent, passionate, wrathful execution. They say that's un unseemly, that's uncouth, we don't believe in that. To which I would say, then Jesus is useless to the downtrodden. If you can pat them on the head and say, don't worry, it's, it's okay, what difference is that from anybody else's religion or philosophy or philanthropy? Jesus is going to come back and not just help this person. He's going to solve all of it. Jesus is not a soft savior. He is omnipotent good, all-powerful benevolence, which demands a violent reaction against evil. Now, we've been trained to think that all violence is inherently unchristian and sinful. But if you read your Bible, that is simply not how it presents it to us. Joshua conquered the Canaanites and it was righteous in God's eyes. Samuel hacked King Agag to pieces before the Lord. And he was the righteous one in that story. Elijah slaughtered the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And it was part of the revival God was bringing to his nation. Jesus made a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple. All the same verses about love and kindness apply, but you can't ignore these other ones either. And you might say, well, I don't know if I would ever be in the right. Here's the good news. Jesus will only ever execute his wrath and justice properly and fairly and rightly. If you cannot accommodate this kind of Jesus in your religion, then you do not yet understand what righteousness is. 
You have a too light view of your own sin. Because that's really what it amounts to, isn't it? Well, we're bad, but we're not that bad. Nobody deserves this. Oh, is that what you think? Is that what you think? You think that God owes us this mercy? You think that we are somehow entitled to God to continue to allow us to sin and never actually step in and do something about it? You don't believe that the wages of sin is death? And the thing is, if we don't understand Jesus in this proper way, then we are going to be limited in our own righteousness. And people that feel very passionately about matters of justice and morality are going to start to look elsewhere to solve their problems rather than to Christ. Because they're going to think all Jesus does is sit there and sing Kumbaya all day long. Am I saying we need to like have some sort of violent revolution? No. But I'm saying a Christian man is not only holding the proper opinions about what is good and evil, he has the strength of character to step up and do something about it. In your family, it's not just to sit there and think, man, the way my wife is talking to my kids is really not right. She shouldn't do that. You've got to step up and say, no, we're not going to do this to one another. It's not just to agree that the things you're being asked to do at your job are unethical and should not be done. It's to confront your boss to his face and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's not just to say, man, I can't believe what's happening in our nation or what's happening in our community. It's actually maybe going to a city council meeting once in a while and say, hey, I live here and I'm not okay with that. The strength of character to confront what is wicked, not just hold the right opinions about it. Because Christians can do that. We get in a little circle, we talk about how bad everything is, and then we come back next week and do it again. Yeah, well, you know, I've been struggling with this, this sin over and over again. Are you going to do something about it? Well, you know, I, I should. This, can I just tell you, having been a young man and, and led some of these groups too, when you see these accountability groups, especially related to things like pornography, that's what they become expressing remorse for the thing I've done, but never taking any actual steps to ride in like Jesus and do something about it. What's the point of temptation for you? Oh, man, it's my phone. It's just, it always gets me. Okay, you need to get rid of your phone and get a flip phone. Well, no, I, I need it for work, and I, you know, I, I've already paid for the subscription, and I still owe money on it. And it's like, th then what are we doing? Then what are we doing? You're not willing to ride in and strike down the nations. You just want to sit there and lament over what's happening. We've got to have that same strength of character that Jesus does, not just to identify evil, but to confront it and put a stop to it where we can. And I realize we do not always have the means to do that on a national scale, but look to your own household. What can you put right there? What about your neighborhood? Start there, this very congregation, and start doing the right thing, not just believing the right thing. Jesus is going to come back. Do you realize what a prayer for Jesus' return means? I forget his name, and I really ought to look it up because I've quoted it a few times, but one of the commentators I've read in Isaiah said, Christians ought to take great care when they pray for the return of the Lord, for that is a prayer for the end of the world. Every time you say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, you're saying, bring an end to the world. Every time you say, Maranatha, Come soon. You're saying, strike down the nations, O God. Every time you say, Lord, this world is getting so hard, when are you going to come and take us back? What you're in effect saying is, Jesus, it's time for you to ride into battle and smite the nations with a rod of iron. That's all worked into that. Evil will be crushed. Jesus will be king. It'll be glorious, but oh, it's going to be a bloody day. A necessary day. And the whole world will sit back and say, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. 
The world cannot handle a Jesus like this because they believe neither in sin nor in justice. In the end, the only thing they worship is their own appetites. I want to do whatever I want to do, and if I don't like what you're doing, I want to be able to stop it. But don't you dare, God, tell me what I'm supposed to do. We Christians ought to know better. We Christians need to have a holistic view of Jesus that carries us from Genesis to Revelation, from I am the good shepherd to the one whose robes are dipped in blood, from blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy all the way to where the corpses are gathered, there the vultures will be. That's a whole picture of Jesus. Teach it to your children. Teach it to your friends. Don't try to pass Jesus off as some soft soap guy. You know, people aren't interested in that anymore, right? Everybody's all excited about, you know, people that are, you know, activists and fighters. And there was that whole alpha male trend on the Internet. This is the kind of people we need to lead us. Y'all, Jesus is the, the man among men, right? He's the king among kings. He's the Lord among lords. He's the God, very God. Why are we not holding him up like that? I hope you are. And we're doing it here today. There's something that speaks, especially I'll say, to the masculine soul, especially to the young masculine soul, when they realize that being a Christian is not just about like wearing frilly clothes and just kind of smiling. Praise the Lord. Good to see you. Hello. Yes. <laughs> that there's a strength of character that comes into this. And all the things that you feel like ought to be done, that might very well be the voice of the Holy Spirit communicating the character of Christ to you. We ought to delight in the fact that we have a Lord whose strength is equal to the task of worldwide redemption. And when that day comes, we'll be marching in with him. But until that day comes, we ought to tell as many people as we can that because he has not come yet, salvation is still possible. And people love to mock this. Say, oh, get saved? Saved from what? God's going to save me from what God's going to do? That's not right. To which I say, you insolent sinner. You, would you stand before a judge when you're very clearly guilty who pronounces you guilty and say, oh, so what? You're, you're just going to throw me to jail like that? Yes, you broke the law. You broke God's law. And some of you need today take seriously the possibility that when Jesus returns, you're not going to be his ally. You will be his enemy. Well, I'm not opposed to Jesus. I'm just not really a Christian. And if I see him, then I'll, I'll believe him. You're not going to see him come like that and have the chance. Your chance is right now. Me telling you this right now. This is your warning. This is also your hope. This is either to you the, the sound of wedding bells or funeral bells for you. You've got to make the decision. Because the good news is that Jesus ascended to heaven for up to now about 2,000 years. Why? Because he's waiting for you. When I come, it's going to be pain. It's going to be blood. It's going to be judgment. It's going to be death. So in the meantime, let's tell the whole world and make sure everyone gets a chance to be saved from that day. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the apostle said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, if God's not willing that any should perish, why doesn't he just, just say that it doesn't count anymore? Because he's too good for that. A good judge is not a judge who lets the serial killer go free because he was feeling good about it. No, man, that, deserves, that man deserves to be punished. Same thing for you. 
that all should reach repentance. What does repentance mean? It means to turn away from your old way of living, your old way of thinking, and say, Jesus is my king now. You come and you receive his love. How much love does he have for you? Before pouring out his wrath and shedding the blood of others, he shed his own blood freely on the cross so that yours didn't have to be. So that I can stand here and say, how does, much does Jesus love you? This much. He wants you. He's waiting for you to be saved. And the Bible says the rapture won't even happen until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Who knows how many more we're waiting on? The Lord knows in his sovereignty, but it could even be today. Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to have a sword in his hand. But until that day comes, his love is extended to you and to me for all who will accept his sacrifice, put their faith in him and receive his salvation and his pardon.